0: Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics and this is 2019. We are about 12 hours out from Theresa May's catastrophic defeat in the Commons of her Brexit deal and we are about 12 hours before what we assume will be her narrow victory in a no-confidence vote. We're going to try and work out what happens next. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking.
1: Order. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose, order. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock! She cannot seriously believe
2: that after two years of failure, she is capable of negotiating a good deal
0: for the people. It's country. 10.30 on Tuesday evening and I've spent the last couple of hours trying to make sense of what Theresa May's historic defeat means for Brexit, and I have to say I cannot remember a time since we've been doing this podcast when I have felt more completely perplexed. There is no shortage of opinion out there and I've been ploughing through a lot of it. There is someone making a case for everything. All the possibilities have their advocates from no deal through to a second referendum and some new deal, but I, I cannot... At this time on Tuesday see what the thing is that somehow can command majority support in the Commons and support from the European Union if it's there I, I can't see it and, and I feel completely lost I need to talk to Helen and to Chris and to Kenneth about this tomorrow
2: Okay, Is that, that's fine. Uh, Do you want to just sort of um, say where you were watching the vote last night? I was sitting watching it on my laptop
3: and pretty
0: much... <laughs> I am joined by Helen Thompson, by Chris Bickerton. It's a pleasure to welcome back Kenneth Armstrong, who is the author of the book Brexit Time, Leaving the EU, Why, How and When. Those are all good questions. It's quite a thought to think that we still don't know why. I don't know if we know why. How and when... So if we start with when, because Kenneth, when we last did this, about six weeks ago, you correctly told us in anticipation that the European Court was going to tell the British government and the British Parliament that we could revoke Article 50. We're now at the point where the clock has ticked on quite a long way, and we are no nearer to knowing how. What are the options in relation to Article 50 and the, the March the 29th deadline? My assumption is that revocation is impossible in political terms because the court said that to revoke is to commit the UK to remaining in the European Union. And that would only be possible after a second referendum. And we are not going to have a second referendum before the 29th of March. So the options are presumably either no deal or extension.
1: The argument for extension, I think, is becoming very strong now because there is so little time to do anything else. The 29th March deadline happens by operation of law, unless there is a withdrawal agreement, the UK will leave two years after its notification, and that will be the 29th of March. The court did say that the UK could unilaterally revoke its Article 50 notification. One thing that perhaps John Major was saying at the time was, well, maybe we could use this to simply pause the process. And that's clearly not possible. It's not a pause button. You either decide you're going ahead and leaving the EU, or you decide that you are unconditionally and unequivocally deciding to stay. And as you say, there'd have to be a politics that would make that happen. And I think the politics of that would have to be another referendum to... In a way, it's
0: inconceivable that Parliament, particularly this Parliament, could take that decision.
1: I mean, some do say that Parliament could itself make that decision. We didn't, you know, referendums have a particular ambiguous constitutional status in the UK and that Parliament could have in fact just simply decide that the will of the people now was that we were going to stay in the EU. I, I agree. I think that that seems fanciful that that could happen. I can't see circumstances in which Parliament could do that unless it was for perhaps a general election in between, you could see that maybe that could be the the mandate that then says that something is different. So in terms of extending the deadline, which I think is the thing that most people seem to be talking about now because we're just so close to that deadline, that's clearly possible. The UK would have to request it and the EU27 would have to agree to it. And I, I guess, I mean, most people think, well, why wouldn't they agree to that? But they might want to think, well, but what is this for? Is it simply to carry on the muddle? You know, it has to be for a purpose, a particular purpose. And what would that be? A general election, a referendum, or a clear sense that Parliament could come together on some sort of consensus, but wasn't just there yet. So
0: just to be clear, is your sense of it, in legal and political terms, that to make that request, it has to be grounded on a fairly concrete plan, including presumably a future date, it can't be open-ended that would be the pause there has to be a another 29th of March coming up a further date with a specific plan or proposal of what will happen before that date whether it's a referendum or an election or the laying out of some alternative plans.
1: I think so I think the problem though is trying to define what that time period should be not least because we've got European Parliament elections coming up in May and of course then the UK would still possibly still be a member state at that point and MEPs from the UK potentially electable at that at that point? I mean, I think things that were being said last week were floating ideas of an extension to something like July.
2: I think if you look, though, at what was coming out of various eu 27 governments over the last two days, I think something that did not seem possible last week, which was Theresa May asking for an extension to try to get this withdrawal agreement and an adjusted political declaration through Parliament might now be accepted. I think that last week I would have said that that wasn't possible, that the EU 27th position was going to be, it either has to be for a referendum or for a general election. But I think that from their point of view, assuming that enough of them don't actually want to try to keep Britain in the European Union, and I think this is a really deep and important question, that the possibility of allowing this more time is something that's got some attraction from their point of view.
0: But again, on the sequencing question, is it that we need to know what the adjustment is before we make the request or do we say give us some time to work out something that is both acceptable to Parliament and acceptable to the European Union because if it's if we need to work out what it is that we're going to do before we make the request for the extension the clock will keep ticking and we are getting dangerously close. It
2: will but there's I think you've got to distinguish here between the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration Because the people now who want Norway Plus or Common Market 2 or whatever fanciful name that they're calling it cannot change the withdrawal agreement. They still need the withdrawal agreement to pass and they're not going to get a different withdrawal agreement. They have to have a different political declaration, one that biases the future more towards what they want. Now, actually, in terms of changing that in the time frame available, that isn't actually so difficult. If there was a parliamentary majority for it now, that is a huge if I'm not actually convinced that there is
0: because I'll bring Chris in in a second because I'm still I'm really struggling with this <laughs> I have to be honest so I'm still puzzled by the question were it to be possible to make that adjustment to the political declaration because it's clear there is within the commons some f- consensus and the possibility and majority for it then we wouldn't need the extension right we could just in a way
2: no, we wouldn't. But you could see, I think, a situation in which it will be emerging consensus. I mean, I say in principle, because I, I've got doubts about whether such a consensus could happen. And but, we are going to come on to yeah. that. Let's say it does. And there is emerging consensus in that direction. And it needs some more time to then ensure that enough people are also on side for passing the withdrawal agreement, which is actually those two things go together. But there's quite a lot of MPs who don't seem to see that they go together is I can see that the EU might give an extension for letting that process play itself out.
0: And would that extension take us past the European parliamentary elections? Because that is a big... No. No, because, again, it seems so hard to imagine how we could remain in the European Union past those elections and not, not have a vote? Or?
2: Well, I think there's a difference between maybe the elections and when the new European Parliament has to sit, which is, in, I believe is July. Can you correct me if I'm wrong about that?
0: We would just sit out those elections if we were still a member state, would we, Chris?
3: Uh, I think so yeah but I'm when talking about an extension of article 50 we risk I think forgetting some of the politics of not having an extension the politics around the deal and no deal is very important if May's strategy remains that of trying to get her deal through in some possibly some modified form by picking off as many MPs as possible
0: there's a lot There's a lot to do. Um,
3: I think her options are limited. If that remains, you know, her strategy, no deal is really important for that. The prospect of falling out of the European Union is crucial to get anyone across the sort of other side voting for her deal. As soon as we get into the domain of extending Article 50...
0: Her deal is dead.
3: Well, her deal is certainly dead. We're also in the realm of just buying time, kicking the can down the road into sort of these waters of where do we start? Do we start again? What's the purpose? I mean, it takes us into a slightly different political environment. So at the moment, I can see her reluctance to do that, even though she might be pushed into doing it, because all of the negotiating tactics and strategy vis-a-vis the MPs is just simply taken away and something else has to has to happen.
2: I just think we should stop talking about the deal. I don't think it's very helpful. In this sense, Is is that the withdrawal agreement I don't think is dead at all there is a possibility that the withdrawal agreement will still pass the political declaration as it stands at the moment is not going to go with that so the people who want the political declaration change will also have to pass the withdrawal agreement because you cannot embody norway plus plus or common market till whatever it's called into the withdrawal agreement they're but, two separate issues and
0: is there any way that these things can be within this process somehow uncoupled
2: and I think
1: Helen is absolutely right. But I think the problem, and this is really what, what Chris is highlighting, is that the politicians who actually have to make the decisions on that don't make that distinction. They're not making that distinction. We saw recently in one of the European Policy Centre papers, Andrew Duff had written about what one could do to decouple these things. And it is clear that what you need to do is really focus very clearly on on the political declaration side of things. And remember, the political declaration side of things simply encompasses where the UK and the EU had got to on the future in terms of what the May government said it wanted. But that doesn't preclude any other government or any new government coming along with a different vision of what that could be. So in some ways, I think what Andrew Duff was trying to point to was take out some of the language that is there that precludes some visions of the future, make it somewhat more open in ways that would allow a different, if it, if we end up with a different government, or if we end up with the government controlled by somebody else, coming up with a different version of the future, then that's all possible. But we've known all these things, and that still hasn't changed the arithmetic. So I think I agree that things can be decoupled, but it's not doesn't seem to be happening on the ground with our MPs. I think the problem with that is. I don't think the opposition to May's
3: deal lies in the text of the political declaration. It lies in the legally binding text of the withdrawal treaty, notably the backstop, people's feeling that either this isn't really delivering Brexit or that the backstop will uh, simply undo the United Kingdom. I mean, the opposition that's united the Commons against her deal lies in the legally binding part of it.
1: I disagree because I think the backstop is, I mean, you're you're right for a particular group of MPs, and that includes the DUP, and includes certain sections of the, of the Conservative Party. But it doesn't but include the for, Labour Party. But if you're looking for where the consensus lies, yeah. the consensus is just about what the vision of the future would be, and in terms of flipping the numbers, I mean, the flipping the numbers on, on a huge vote last night, you really do have to form a new consensus, and that only is about the future, not these smaller groupings who are upset about the backstop. Can you
2: say on the backstop, though, as well, I think that there was something actually really quite significant in those exchange of letters that went on between the government and Tuscan and Juncker because, effectively, they were saying, I mean Tuscan and Juncker, that the backstop and the arrangements in it would not in any sense be necessarily the basis of the future relationship. Now, that is quite a distinction from what we started with where the claim was which I think was in the political declaration, and I could be wrong about that, that the assumption of what was in the backstop where customs was concerned would be the starting point for the future relationship. You said we'd we'd build upon that. Yeah, and that's what we talked about last time. And and, and that has gone now in terms of those exchange letters. So I think that is really a significant change that actually came out of what's gone on in the last 48 hours. But it doesn't seem to have made any difference. And I think part of the reason it doesn't make any difference is, is because some of the people in the ERG group are not actually interested in the details of the withdrawal agreement or indeed in the political declaration. They're interested in somebody other than Theresa May being prime minister. And they see an opportunity through this to bring that about. Now, they've been thwarted once through the confidence vote, but I don't think that they think that's the the end of the matter.
0: And it's also clear the number that voted in the confidence vote was almost exactly the same as the number that voted against Theresa May last night. Before we come on to the fundamental question, which is can this parliament this group of MPs arrive at a consensus. Can we sort of also take a step back and just talk about that bigger question, which is how much leeway has Parliament got here to assert itself against the executive? Because a lot of the rumblings preceding the vote were that we're on the cusp of some fundamental constitutional questions and possibly even some big constitutional changes if Parliament, quote unquote, takes control Of this process. And these arguments range from dancing on the head of the pin of what the word forthwith means in the tabling of amendments through to an exchange in the debate yesterday between Theresa May and Ed Miliband, in which Ed Miliband said that the executive is the servant of the legislature, and Theresa May said, no, the executive in this case is the servant of the people, which is a pretty fundamental difference of opinion. How do you see? range of possibility for Parliament to wrest control of this from Theresa May and her government?
2: Well I'd say that the basic structural facts of the British constitutional settlement and the ways in which Parliament does its business are on the executive's side. The precedent
0: is for the executive. And
2: one of the reasons, for, or in some sense, the primary reason for that is is that the executive controls parliamentary business. So unless you change the executive, it's really quite difficult to see how a second referendum bill is going through. Now, the big caveat to that is is the speaker, whether the speaker is willing to basically turn over lots of customary practice and dispense with the standing order, in which the government essentially controls the parliamentary timetable.
1: But it's also the, what's laid down in the With, withdrawal act, which was that having had a vote not to approve the deal, there'd then be a 21-day yeah. period by which a minister would have to come back, and then there'd be you know another five days you know for for, for a debate. What's happened? The important thing about Berko's agreement to the the Grieve amendment was to say no, that's going to have to happen within three days. And that's why we're going to have, I think, by Monday then, some sense of what the government is going to have to come up with in terms of Plan B. So that is quite a good example of parliamentarians, if you like, asserting some degree of influence on the process. That's not necessarily the same as Parliament being able to wrest control over it. And what would it mean from the EU side for that to happen? I mean, the EU negotiates with governments. It doesn't negotiate with parliaments.
3: I think in any case, the great obstacle to Parliament taking sort of a driving seat is that they don't know what they would do were they to have the controls it's not as if there's this grand idea couched within the sort of the seats of the house of the commons that unites mps against the the executive and they just want to be unleashed in order to implement it so there's a lot of kind of gesturing there's a lot of i think power politics really over who thinks they can call the shots and i think this is quite right constitutionally this is a really sort of an unravelling if you like of constitutional precedent but it's not clear to me that there's an overarching purpose for it. But
0: is not one thing that parliament could do which the May government to this point has been very resistant of doing which is to engineer a series of votes to test whether there might be a majority for x or y or z. I mean Theresa May's line has been like it's my deal or no deal you know it's me or the highway whatever but There are people in Parliament who think the only way to find out what can pass is for Parliament itself or some group of MPs to start tabling votes to test opinion in Parliament. And that's the thing that the May government has resisted. Is that not where this division might come? I mean, is there not some possibility that? It might
2: That's how be, they, but you
1: kind of think, wasn't that what we should have done two years ago before we started the negotiations? You, right, but given... Where, given you, would, you wouldn't start from here, but here is where you we still, are.
2: You still think then about what has to happen for the legislature to be in control of it. So say that you got a parliamentary majority for Norway plus. Again, so so you, Parliament
0: says, let's vote on this, 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 and see which one ends up the winner in this kind of contest.
2: Then the executive would still then have to go back and talk to the EU about changing the political declaration. It's not the legislature that can do that for the reasons that Kenneth just said because the EU doesn't deal with legislatures. If Parliament voted in this sequence of votes for a referendum it would still be the case that unless the Speaker intervened to overthrow the notion that the Executive controls parliamentary business that the Executive would then have to legislate or lead the legislation for that primary legislation is required for a referendum to go through and once you get into that requiring primary legislation for a referendum you immediately have to have enough consensus for a parliamentary majority on what the question is going to be on who's going to vote something that's going to be what the franchise is or i mean by that but something that's going to be extremely contested so even if you just get some whatever we would call it motion which shows that enough MPs are going to vote for are willing to support a referendum they've also got to be much more specific than that they've got to say what the question is going to be and they say they've got to decide what the franchise is and that is the only and then they've got to persuade Theresa May that that is what she's got to do next I mean that's still
0: yeah and in a way that's the the great challenge here which is we can talk about the executive but we're actually talking about this executive I mean if it's not going to be Theresa May we also need a political sequence that replaces her as prime minister with someone else now, there could be another Conservative, but we know from the way the Conservative Party does these things that it now has to go to the members. And, you know, the irony of this situation is in all the polling that there's been in recent weeks, pollsters have found one constituency where there is a very strong majority for no deal. And that is the members of the Conservative Party. It's extraordinarily party.
2: difficult to see how any Conservative leader is going to lead legislation for a second referendum.
0: Exactly. But well, particularly under their method for choosing a new leader.
2: Well, I don't even think that. I think it doesn't matter what... I mean, they, they would destroy the Conservative Party to do that. Right. You'd have Dominic to have a, Grieve as a Prime have,
0: Minister of a national government. You would have to have a different government. He says, throwing out an
2: idea. <laughs> but you would have to have a di- I said Conservative government. I didn't say a national government. Okay. Yeah, you Dominic Grieve is
0: not going to be Prime Minister of a Conservative government.
3: But I think that's... I mean, that is maybe putting the finger on it is it's this executive it's also this parliament so what we're talking about here is in some way a fundamental attenuation of partisan divisions a willingness to contemplate sort of cross party unity on on a particular way out of the European Union that thus far has not been countenanced by anybody so the idea that over the course of two years there's been this great idea such as Norway plus that nobody's really discussed and now it's going to be Able to just whistle through a sort of a unified parliament if Theresa May steps back. It just seems to me out of step with reality. And so I think. There are two dynamics going on. One is the substance of the EU and exit and the the, the content of this. The other is that Westminster has become essentially unhinged from the country as a whole, and it has its own internal momentum and dynamic, which often politics can have. And now I don't know where that's going to go. I think it's not necessarily going to go in some sort of super-calculated and sort of uh, balanced direction.
2: I was just going to say, on Norway as well, Norway+, Plus, there has been an effective vote on Norway in the amendment that came back from the House of Lords during, I think it was June of last year, during the Withdrawal Bill, and only 126 MPs voted for that amendment. So one potential landing
1: zone for trying to get both, having Parliament have something to do, is of course there's always going to be a need for legislation to implement the Withdrawal Agreement, and we've just been waiting for that to be published, waiting on the vote. One idea would be to publish a draft of that bill and have a very clear piece in it, which is about what the role of Parliament would be on the back of a political declaration in terms of what instructions it would be giving or could give or what votes it could have on what the government would then actually negotiate once we left. And in a sense, it would deflect the attention away from the agreement itself to what would actually Parliament do to give some degree of instruction to government. It would be a massive change from what has ever happened in terms of what role Parliament has played in terms of the government's role in international negotiations. But it's entirely conceivable that that bill could contain provisions for Parliament to have a role in that. And I think it would be a very sensible thing for the government to try and do. But do you think,
0: given what we know about the way the opposition has hardened around so many things and various kinds of uncoupling doesn't seem to cut much ice, But that kind of complicated and also all of that does require a certain amount of trust or faith going forward.
1: Would that be enough? But we've got a precedent for it. When the trade bill was going through, there was the amendment that was agreed, surprisingly, to everybody's surprise, about medicines, where the, the clause says that the government will negotiate in the future to have as close a possible connection to the European Medicines a- Agency and the networks of medicines regulators. So in a sense, that was Parliament instructing the executive on what it should do in an international negotiation. Well, extend that out and say, well, if there are things that you want to have in there, have motions put before Parliament that they can debate and then see where we end up. But that would require quite a lot of time.
0: Yeah. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? On the basic politics of this, as we talk on Wednesday morning, assuming that Theresa May wins her vote, I feel like we've been here before. (laughs) Let's assume that she is still prime minister tomorrow. As things stand, what it looks like, it's not Kenneth's proposal, it's some attempt from this executive to reach out, as they say, to parliament and to the opposition to find if there is any common ground. And yet there is no indication as yet that Theresa May is willing to compromise on what she sees as her red lines or fundamental issues. So that's free movement and also no permanent customs union, as I understand it. Now, without movement on those two things, is there any possibility of a consensus in this parliament?
2: Well, there could be a consensus which you might be able to sign up to to make what is in the political declaration more open-ended. It's already quite open-ended. But isn't
0: part of the problem... Well, that what is, many people have with it is that it's so open-ended. I mean, don't they want to pin it down? Or?
2: But that's the problem, is there isn't consensus to pin it down. And so that is where there is space for compromise in the sense is, OK, we have to postpone having this discussion about the future relationship until we've left the European Union. And some of the reasons, I think, why there are people on the Labour Party, say I'd say the Stephen Kinnock position, who are not willing to support the withdrawal agreement with the political declaration is is because they think the political declaration closes things down too narrowly to Theresa May's position. So if you opened it back up again, not committing to anything, because there isn't consensus to commit to anything, but you don't bias it towards Theresa May's preferences as much as it is, even though I don't think it's as much as some people think it is, then you've got the basis for picking some of those people off. Because I don't think that some of the Labour MPs like Stephen Kinnock who is leading the Norway Plus option, really want a second referendum. But
0: just on the basic numbers, it's not just some of those people. You've got to pick off, there are 117 Conservative MPs who are not going to vote for a more open-ended version of this. So you've got to pick off at least 117 opposition Labour. I mean, I'm assuming, again, the SNP aren't aren't pick-offable on this. So we're talking about close to half the parliamentary Labour Party have got to be picked off. And then... You have a prime minister who only is able to pass legislation with the support of half of the opposition. And that is an issue that clearly splits the cabinet. I mean, the cabinet, I don't think, can hold together under those circumstances. I genuinely do not see how you get there.
2: You can do two things. You can try to make the political declaration a bit more open-ended at the customs union, and you can try and really reinforce this message that the backstop doesn't make it a guarantee that we're staying in the customs union. Now, I know you're saying two different things to two different people, but if you're keeping the possibilities open so that this is a future battle that can be before, probably in in as incoherent way as this one has, then you have got some space to bring two different sides back into it.
3: I think the numbers are just too great. I would probably have agreed, had we seen may lose but having brought a reasonably substantial number of people onto her side and so we were into the into the territory of arguing about what are essentially details important details but details I think the vote last night was something else. I think it was an overwhelming rejection of her deal as a whole. Um, and her. Her and
0: style, and her approach, her, all her, her, all these her things. method.
3: Yep. There are many, many more people voted against that deal than who are fundamentally opposed to some particular oh, aspect totally of it. I entirely agree about that. So, so other things are going on. and so And the momentum, I think, is really very, very strong. And it limits the options, I think. It means that the options are pushing very firmly towards an extension, The second referendum has the enormous appeal for MPs that it throws all this difficult stuff back to the people. And the MPs don't have, I think, a great solution that they want to table. So for them, that's very tempting. It also pushes sort of in the direction of some sort of fundamental change where Parliament becomes a kind of cross party unified body that somehow acts These are, but that's the kind of issues I think negotiating you know, around the political I just don't see that as a way out of the current but impasse. But you've still
2: got to go back to this issue of how this second referendum legislation is going to get through the House of Commons and is going to have the content that it needs in order to set up that referendum
0: I just want to ask one more question on the possibility that this government, Theresa May's government, can somehow get some version of this to pass. Is there any way in which she could have a conversation with some people in Labour, maybe even including Jeremy Corbyn, where the deal is essentially, what would it take for you lot to abstain? And if you abstain, my party, there's a majority in my party still, not least because there are so many government ministers. I mean, maybe they would all resign at that point. But the payroll more or less gets it through with a few extra. Is there any circumstance but in which the deal is to say to Labour, you won't own this because you'll abstain on it. But if you abstain on it, we can just squeak it through. I mean, it's still going to be tight because of the SNP and everything else. The SNP won't abstain. Because I'm still struck by, I wrote about this recently, one of the things that seems to have vanished from British politics is abstaining on these votes. No one abstained on the confidence vote in the leadership vote for Theresa May. As far as I can tell, almost no one abstained last night. What happened to abstention? I would abstain
1: because I have no idea what's going on. But I think that a big problem would be is that if a vote comes back on something, it's going to be very much similar to what we already have. So how could you have just voted against it one time round and then suddenly decide you're going to abstain the next time round? And I mean, Corbyn last night when he was talking in his closing speech was attacking things that weren't just about the political declaration. It was also the transitional period. He was talking about the extension of the transitional period, more contributions being made to the EU budget during that period. He was attacking actually fundamental aspects or core aspects of the withdrawal agreement itself, then they're not going to be renegotiated. They're not going. They're not going to change. So it'd be quite odd, then, I think, for Labour suddenly to say, "Well, that thing we were upset about a week ago, or so ago, we're now just abstaining on it." Especially since what he's trying to do is bring down the government and force a general election.
2: Yeah, I think though, I think abstentions might yet still come into play. I think the other thing what we've got to bear in mind is you've got two groups of people in particular: the ERG and the second referendum people, who are gambling that they will get what they want. And they can't both be right.
0: No, that's definitely true.
2: <laughs> so it's an interesting, in an analytical sense, dilemma that's in play, because all the structural, legal and parliamentary conditions are on the side of the ERG, because of the Withdrawal um, Act that was passed last yeah, year. T- and, time is on the side. Yeah. And the political will, a fierce political will, is on the side of the stop Brexiters, or at least stopping no deal, that would be a better way of putting that. So... Who wins in that contest? I don't know what the answer to that is, but only one of them has got any possibility of winning. As it becomes clearer which of them is more likely to win, then the other side has to make a choice. And we haven't got to that point yet. And that's why I think there is still things to change in this political party. But in a
0: way, that that is almost the fundamental question. Do you actually think that, that we are moving to that being the choice? Because even a week ago, I said, well, neither of them are going to win. It, there's not going to be a separate, second referendum and there is not going to be an ERG-style no deal. Are you saying that now actually both sides are strengthened in their view that that is the choice?
2: I think that they think that, but I still think there is this possibility of there being sufficient parliamentary consensus to change the political declaration in ways that make it more open-ended. I'm not saying that will happen, I'm just saying I don't rule that out as a possibility.
3: I think uh, we're getting closer to those being the two options, the ERG and the second referendum. And I don't think the ERG is as strong as they think. They think they're running down the clock in a way, but they're not... Extending Article 50 is absolutely possible and reasonably likely, I think, uh, certainly achievable. And all of a sudden the ticking clock disappears and we're into the territory of actually the second referendum as a more viable reason for extending Article 50. Now, Helen's absolutely right. The second referendum is not an easy thing to get through uh, at all. But if the three options are changing the the deal, especially the political uh, declaration, in order to get it through Parliament as things stand, or just running down to to No Deal, or extending Article 50 and having a second referendum as the reason for it. I mean, I've been absolutely wrong on whether this deal would go through or not. So, but I I think the most likely of those options is beginning to be the third one.
1: I mean, if there is another referendum, then I mean, do you then see that in terms of the choices as being a choice between? this deal and no deal? Or would it be a straight leave remain again?
3: I mean, that's, uh, again, one of the reasons why the second referendum is difficult, because these are things that Parliament would have to decide on.
2: They have to to decide in the act of actually passing this legislation. You can't decide to have a referendum, and legislate for that referendum, and then decide these things afterwards. I
0: mean, to me, it'd be really odd for this deal to be... I think so. ...put to the people, because Parliament has resoundingly rejected it. And the other thing that I've been really struck by is that in polling... The public hate it too. Now, parliamentarians seem to hate it because they've come to hate Theresa May. With many of them, their personal dealings with her, her refusal to talk to them in a way that they feel gives them respect, her what seems to them her kind of blinkered approach. But the public haven't been dealing with her. And yet, given the options, it's easily the least popular option relative to no deal or a second referendum. People hate this deal too. I don't completely understand why, apart from the fact that They've got it into their heads that this is just some kind of botched political compromise and what people hate at the moment is politics. I would not
1: so sure that Mrs. May wouldn't think about presenting the deal. I mean she's pretty stubborn on things oh, she, and when sure she takes is. a view on things. And I've I've said before there's a kind of Hail Mary option that she has, which is actually to embrace the referendum and say, Well, listen, this is where I got to. This is the deal. Parliament isn't going to get it through. But I'm telling you, this is the best way Brexit can actually be delivered. And the the alternative is you risk Brexit not happening whatsoever. So you take a view and then you give your instructions to your MPs on the back of it. I wouldn't be surprised if you at least contemplated But it would be a Hail Mary pass because it would lose. I
0: think.
3: In what sense? The deal would lose. Yes, I think. Because,
0: as it were, that whole mobilized Brexit campaign and campaigning strategy, the kind of uncivil war, the thing, you know, the Dominic Cummings, Benedict Cumberbatch, view of the world would fall apart because it would not come out for this deal.
3: I mean, there's no way you can organise a second referendum in a way that doesn't in some way prejudge the outcome. Yeah. You just can't. I mean, it's the logic of a second referendum. You've already had it once. So the second one will inevitably be connected to what's happened in between in a way that somehow skewers the result. I can't think of a, a single way in which you could order, order the question such that it doesn't in some way, usually it would pri- pri- privilege remain, I think. It's very difficult to imagine it either being neutral or favouring Brexit.
0: So can I ask the general election question? Because the other... Th- historical precedent here if you just looked at this if you kind of went to sleep for three years and then woke up and saw parliament was completely and utterly stuck just kind of unable to move forwards backwards or sideways traditionally there are two ways out here one is a general election the other is some kind of government of national unity so we're not talking about a government of national unity it's this odd thing it's not Theresa may talking about bringing people into her government it's this sort of consensus that has to be achieved across the parliamentary benches it's a it's a legislature of national unity, which is really hard to construct, and there isn't really a historical precedent for that. Or you have a general election. So, my feeling is that the obvious way out of this, maybe the only way out of this, is to have a general election. But I also see it's politically not going to happen because Jeremy Corbyn is leader of the Labour Party, and that disciplines, Conservatives. And then Theresa May has said she will not fight another election and many people will hold her to that. And I cannot see the Tories having a process to get a new leader in place who would be in a position to fight a general election this year and not
1: lose it. But the only way of manufacturing the general election is an early general election is in terms of the fixed term Parliament Act. And of course, there's votes. The confidence vote is a vote in those terms. So if it's lost tonight, then we don't get a gen- an early general election. You'd have to then at some other point, have a vote amongst MPs where, as they did in 2017, decide that without a conference motion... that's Theresa May's other
0: Hail Mary, which is to call one herself. And as it were, defy her own party and say, I know I said I wouldn't fight another one, but needs must. I know I'm a useless campaigner, but I'll be better this time. It's still Corbyn I'm up against. I am six points ahead in the opinion polls. I am the most popular person when asked, who do you want to be prime minister? Though everyone seems to hate me. Another of these weird anomalies of contemporary British politics. But it's not going to happen, is it? Apart from anything else, she's not going to do it. But also,
2: that. it runs into the fundamental problem that, that the parties have put themselves in, is, is what manifesto does the Conservative Party fight on this election? What manifesto does the Labour Party fight in this election? If Corbyn were to get his way, then you would, ha- you would end up going into this election with two parties committed to leave, when clearly a significant section of the electorate want one of the two parties, not the Liberal Democrats, to be a Remain Party. So, how are you then? You are going to tear the Labour Party apart, trying to come up with a, a unified manifesto, unless Corbyn was able to impose one effectively, like him and Macdonald did last time. And I think it's it's wrong to say is, is there isn't a precedent for there being the legislature acting as some kind of cross party basis for action in a crisis? Well, it was a different kind of crisis, and that was in nineteen seventy two with the European Community Accession Act, when it took a cross party coalition. It took sixty seven Labour MPs breaking a three line whip to vote with the Conservative government to get Britain into the European community. So we have been here before. European issue does this to our party politics. So I guess
0: I completely take your point, and you know way more about this than me, but that's that was on a vote, whereas this is to sort of create a consensus in the legislature to actually decide on the process and the choices rather than a choice being presented to Parliament and there being a cross-party consensus to get that choice enacted.
2: But this is where I think that this distinction between the political declaration and the withdrawal agreement matters. Because the question to me now, is this on basis of getting more parliamentary consensus around the content of the political declaration? Because if there is, then I think there is a possibility of passing the Withdrawal Act. And if you look at the cross-party alliance that is currently making the running, so to speak, in terms of alternative ideas, the Norway++, Plus Plus, Nick Bowles and, and, and Stephen Kinney, that is what they're trying to do. They I mean, it cannot be the case that they're trying to reject the Withdrawal Act, because the Withdrawal Act is not about the future relationship.
0: Will the Labour Party leadership allow this? (sighs) There we go, silent.
3: I think the Labour Party's calls for a general election are essentially posturing. And it comes from the fact that they know, I mean, many people on the left know that Corbyn finds himself boxed into this space where... He commits to calling for a general election, but in the absence of achieving that, he has to give his support to a second referendum. The general election, I think, could create the sort of space in order to throw up ideas and possible solutions. It would also possibly create a different majority. And Theresa May has been really hobbled by the fact that she doesn't have a majority and relies on the DUP. But I think it just won't happen. And so it's really sort of ushering in, again, more pressure for the second referendum.
0: Yeah, it is one of the oddities that Labour's position on Brexit is to call for a general election. So in a way, for the Conservative parties to agree to a general election is sort of to agree with Labour's position on Brexit. It
2: doesn't another, make any sense. There's another problem as well with this Labour general election line of argument from Corbyn, which is is that assuming... I don't for a moment assume that Labour would win a majority, but let's just say for the sake of argument they won a small majority. And then he does what he says he would do, which is to renegotiate with the European Union. And let's just say for the sake of argument, which I don't think that would happen, that they would reopen the withdrawal agreement and negotiate something else with him, and he brings it back to Parliament. How on earth does he think that this withdrawal agreement is going to pass? Because he's certainly got at least 100 MPs who aren't going to vote for it. So then he's got to depend on conservative votes. So after he, the Labour Party has refused to vote for a conservative negotiated withdrawal agreement, he's going to ask the Conservative Party to vote for a Labour negotiated withdrawal agreement. It just it just doesn't stack up.
0: One last question. One reason why I think it's very hard to see how Labour would win a majority is because of Scotland. This predates Brexit. The fundam- One of the fundamental questions of British politics is for Labour to be a majority government again, it needs to recover in Scotland. There were... Signs of a micro recovery at the last general election, but in polling again in Scotland, Labour are losing seats again. Going into a general election against an SNP that is the party clearly committed on the one hand to remain and a Conservative Party, which will have its own problems, but the choice is probably going to be one where Labour gets squeezed again. Scotland once again is lost to Labour, and once Scotland is lost to Labour, Labour does not win a majority in the United Kingdom unless and it is worth saying this, something happens in Scotland. And in all of the Brexit coverage, certainly south of the border, people have not noted that the SNP is in trouble. I mean, a good old fashioned political scandal slash falling out between the the rival camps of leadership, Alex Salmond, the former leader, and Nicola Sturgeon, the current leader. Again, in normal times, that would be the big story in British politics, because that could really change the equation.
1: That's the thing about general election, right? You just don't know. And the other side of it is, of course, that the Conservatives in Scotland have been the, the resurgent party over the last few years and the position that uh, people like Ruth Davison and David Mundell were taking, they were clearly trying to pivot in a slightly different direction from the May government. So there would be a very interesting dynamic there where there to be an election and where, oddly, Conservatives to pick up seats in Scotland, where would that then lead the Conservative side of that, would that actually lead to a different vision of the future? And would that actually be potentially the thing that then drives drives a future Conservative Party forward in terms of its European position?
2: I think the other thing that is important, though, is, is that the Salmon-Sturgeon conflict also does have some Brexit origins in it, because they did not agree how to deal with the second referendum issue for Scotland in the aftermath of Brexit. So if you remember that Sturgeon said the day after that there was now material change and that meant there was a second referendum and Simon was pushing her for to move ahead with that a lot more quickly than she was willing to do and then she retreated from it not least because of what happened in the in the general election and I think for Simon is is that he understands and it's always because it was always his strategy that an independent Scotland requires both the rest of Britain and Scotland to be in the European Union once that's Disappeared, or if that disappears, I should say, then the whole calculation facing Scottish independence is, is very different. And so that's why he was as frustrated as he was with Sturgeon that she didn't push ahead early with the referendum. And I think you can start to see the breakdown of their relationship there.
1: The one other possibility is, of course, that May is running a minority government. Well, Labour could run a minority government. We could have a change of government without a general election. And that'd be an interesting uh, position then to see how could a minority Labour government form any kind of consensus within Parliament for a different kind of deal. Do you honestly think that that is
0: likelier than any of the other very unlikely options that we've canvassed here? We're still looking for the option that might be likely, but...
1: If the major constraining factor is time and having to do something, this is something you could do immediately. It could happen overnight. But you
2: would need the DUP to support Labour.
1: Yep, but it could happen overnight. Everything else, general elections, other referendums, take time. This could happen immediately. And if it does happen overnight tonight?
0: Oh, I don't know.
2: If the DUP won't vote with Labour in a vote of confidence, even though they oppose the government on the most important issue of the day, it's incredibly difficult to see how they're going to su- provide support for a Labour government.
1: The eyes to the right, 306. The noes to the left, 325.
0: It's now just gone 7.30 on Wednesday evening. I'm sitting in my car... In a car park outside my son's basketball game, I've just listened on the radio to the result of the vote of no confidence. It was, as everyone seems to have predicted, no one's mind appears to have changed on anything in the last few days, despite all the talking. And Theresa May is still there, uh, at the heart of this process, at the heart of British politics. We have a parliament that seems as though it can't live with her, and it can't live without her. I'm listening to her this evening, her short statement after the vote, in which she made an offer to the leaders of the other parties, including Jeremy Corbyn, who didn't sound thrilled to be offered anything, that she would talk to them, she still seems to be the person she's been throughout. She is entirely predictable and somehow completely unfathomable. It's so hard to work out where or how she is going to give something away, which she must or else we leave without a deal. She's offered an amendable motion on Monday. She's been required to provide that, and so we'll see. It'll be the beginning, maybe, of the testing of the views of the Commons on some other questions, but there's still no sign of an agreement, a consensus that can secure a majority. And on Monday, we will be five days nearer the 29th of March. Something has to give and and it may be that what has to give sooner rather than later is that date. So let's take a look at those numbers. There you go. 325 said they had confidence in Theresa May's government,
1: with 306 saying they didn't have confidence in it, Given the government there a majority of 19
0: votes, I should say. There is so much else going on around Britain's Brexit crisis, including in Europe. And a few days ago, I recorded a conversation with Adam Tooze, who many of you will remember from the episode we did about his epic book, Crashed. And Adam takes us through some of what's happening in France and Germany and Italy. And I think it's really important context for the discussion we've just had. So we want to put it out this week as an extra episode. You can get it on Sunday. We really hope that you enjoyed the guides that we put out over the holiday period. The last one with Martin Rees, we realized we didn't tell you the name of his book that we mentioned in passing. It's a really important book. It's called On the Future prospects for humanity. And it is worth reading to take that argument a lot further. We have got some really exciting people coming up. We're going to be talking to John Lanchester about climate dystopias. We're going to be talking to Shoshana Zuboff about surveillance capitalism. And we are going to be talking about Corbyn, Brexit, and next week, Trump. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. And this is 2019. We are about 12 hours out from Theresa May's catastrophic defeat of her Brexit bill. What's no, <coughs> wrong? It's a, It's not a bill, is it? Or is it a bill? It's, it's the meaningful vote approval. Oh, uh, oh God. On The approval <laughs> of. We're just warming into this. Okay, I'll start. Do that again. Yeah. Uh, three, two, one, go.